being nice is being inexact. And I think as a manager, as a leader, we need to give good feedback so people can adjust their behaviors to reach the targets. So being nice to somebody who is missing the target doesn't serve a function, right? If I believe in you and I believe with this unconditional positive regard that you can be a better version of you, then it behoves me, you know, I have a I have a personal responsibility. If I see that you could could do better and we have an accountability, I'm your boss, then I need to say, hey, you're doing X, this behavior, and I'm able to describe it because I've observed it. This doesn't, you know, how does this get you towards your target? It doesn't. Therefore, you need to adjust your behavior. And I have no truck that you might be a little bit upset with me for pointing this out because not pointing it out when it comes to performance review and I give you does not meet objectives, you go, well, I didn't meet objectives, but you've been nice to me all year. Yes, but I was being nice. But I'd rather you told me I wasn't hitting the target. Oh, right. You see the problem. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast, hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests Explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy LaPasa. Thank you very much for joining me. My guest today is an old friend of mine, uh, someone who comes to us from Portugal via Singapore, via Australia, and originally from the UK. He's certainly traveled around and he is an expert in self-leadership. Andrew Bryant has just brought out his new book, The New Leadership Playbook. I caught up with Andrew when I was in Portugal a few weeks ago delivering a talk for a client and Andrew kindly gave me uh, a copy of his book signed uh, of course uh, to his friend and um, I sat down to read it and and as I went through it I thought I have to get Andrew onto the podcast. Uh, This is a leadership podcast in a sense, it's the Connected Leadership Podcast but I come at it from a particular angle. I don't claim to be a leadership expert, I don't have many leadership experts generally on the podcast. My focus is on the role of professional relationships for leaders and aspiring leaders but as I went through the new leadership playbook there were so many stories in there, so many examples that resonated as relevant to listeners to this podcast. So I felt it was a really great fit. Uh, And I'll be honest with you, as I was going through the book, I started just writing down questions that I could ask Andrew uh, on our podcast. And I ended up with way too many. And I was only halfway through the book at that point. Um, So I had to rapidly sort of cut them down. There is so much gold in this book. So uh, I thought it was a chance to explore it with the author. I know we have someone who has got some great experience, great stories, and lots of expertise to share. So we're in for a treat. Andrew, thank you for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. It's my pleasure, Andy. Absolutely pleasure. Well, it's great to see you, and thank you for joining me to record this on your birthday. Um, You called it work, I call it pleasure, and I'm sticking to that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to start. In the book, you you outline certain principles and certain terms that that come under leadership um, and and personal leadership, which is very much your ethos, um, that I thought there were some very interesting distinctions within there. 
But I want, so I want to start by, by looking at a couple of those sets of distinctions, get you to explain those for us, uh, and then we'll tie them together into how they impact professional relationships. So let's just start with that. Let's, let's start with the difference between values, principles, and behaviours, because all of these terms we hear time and time again, um, but I wonder if they start to cross-pollinate and, and get misinterpreted after a while. So just can you just spell out for us the difference between those three, values, principles, and behaviors? Okay. So a value is a frame of mind. And so nothing has in itself inherent value. We might say, well, gold has value, but its its value is is not as a, as a tough metal. It's very soft. It's very malleable. We We attribute value to gold because it's bright and shiny. Um, we might attribute value to diamonds, but as you know, the value of diamonds went up when De Beers did a wonderful marketing campaign saying that men should spend three months' salary on putting a ring on the finger. So value is is arbitrary depending on what somebody puts upon it. So when we talk about something's value, it is, it's the perception of somebody's value, a frame of mind. So when we talk about values, we have to know that it comes from somebody's perspective. All right. So that, that's a value. And a principle is sometimes could be interchangeable with a value. You don't say, well, these are my principles. And often our principles are our, are our values. But for me, a principle is something that is as close as possible, universally true, or at least globally true. Um, if if I uh, if I take this pen that I have on my desk and I drop it, we know that there is a principle that it is going to fall, and that principle we call gravity. It's the fact that we're we're standing on a very large mass, the Earth, and this is a smaller mass, and a large mass attracts a smaller mass, right? Physics. So that is a principle. The reason I make the distinction between values, which a lot of people talk about in leadership and principles, is that a value in itself can be overplayed, right? You could have the value of collaboration, and it sounds like a great value. But what happens if something goes wrong in the organization and it's all about collaboration? Nobody is held accountable. And so, hang on a moment, the value actually went against us. You could have the value of innovation, but you come up with so many creative products that nobody buys any and the company loses a huge amount of money. So you again, you would need, um, you would need uh, innovation with some kind of commercial value. So that's the distinction for me between values and principles. And so I've talked about leadership principles rather than leadership values. Behaviors, on the other hand, are what, what are driven by values and principles, what we actually do, and behaviors are observable, right? You know, I reach up and tap myself on the head is observable. You can hear the tap. You can see the tap. Um, and if I tapped you on the head, you'd feel the tap, right? So these are very tangible, and leaders have to be able to describe behaviors because they need to say to people, these are the behaviors I want you to engage in or give feedback on behaviors. And managers and leaders typically are terrible at articulating values, principles, and behaviors. And do you think that we are mixing them up? Do you think that we are putting uh, sometimes emphasis on the wrong one uh, or um, just ignoring for example, behaviors completely because we're so attuned to our values without thinking what it means. Okay. 
Well, the subtitle to the new leadership playbook is Being Human Whilst Successfully Delivering Accelerated Results. So in the subtitle, there is this paradox that we need to deliver results as as managers, as leaders, in any way. If we don't deliver the results, we will our term will be somewhat limited. We, we have a limited tenure if we don't deliver results. And yet I'm talking about being human. Well, what is that, right? We need to define that. What is what is humanity? And this is where you know, the connection to your audience and the, the connected leader comes in because it's very much about relationship. So there's always this, this paradox. But most of the leadership books that I read and, and I lecture on MBA programs and on universities, so I've read a lot of them, a lot of them approach leadership at this sort of 35,000, 40,000 feet right? These are the principles. Leaders should be like this vision, etc. But the reality is to deliver results, results are only delivered through behaviors. So you have to have both ends of this. You have to have the principle, you have to value, but if it doesn't drive behaviors that drive results, then everything is, uh, it's mute. It, it, it's, it's pointless because there's nothing tangible. Yeah, it's something we talked about on on a recent episode of the Connected Leadership Podcast where, um, you know, I, I observed how many organizations have their, their mission statement and they have their list of values, but they're, they're created by a committee of a handful of people and dictated um, to, to, to the workforce as a whole and no one ever thinks about them. Uh, you know, in terms of delivery. And that's why I thought that that was such an important point to start with, um, understanding the interplay between the values, the principles and the behaviours and how important each each one is. Okay, let's, let's uh, look at our second set of terms that jumped out uh, of your pages for me from, from the pages of the book. Um, and, and that's the difference between responsibility, accountability and ownership. So responsibility, accountability and ownership. Can you talk to that a little bit? Sure. So if you go into an organization and you talk about responsibility versus accountability, those terms are clearly interchangeable within organizations. And in fact, there's a thing that I reference in the book called the RACI matrix, which is a is a responsibility and accountability matrix. And the challenge for me is the psychology of this. I am, as a self-leader, responsible for what I think, what I feel, what I say, and what I do. You and I are friends, um, but I'm not responsible for you, and neither are you responsible for me. You know, that, that is a codependent relationship, right? You know, if you loved me, you do this, says somebody in a marriage, right? That, that, that's manipulation through extending the responsibility. I am not responsible for my wife. And you've met my wife. She's an incredibly strong, powerful, independent woman. And if I tried to be responsible for her, well, I, that would not end well. But I am accountable to her because we have a contract. We are married. And the difference between responsibility and accountability is accountability in the way I define it. And I know that not everybody does, but I define it this way because it, it makes it clean. I'm accountable. I said to you that I would turn up on your podcast at a certain time on a certain day. And I didn't even notice that it was my birthday when I agreed to it. However, because I had said this, I hold myself responsible for my own behaviors and I'm accountable to an agreement I made. That's the distinction. 
Ownership for me is interchangeable with responsibility. I own my thoughts, feelings, words, and actions. I'm responsible for my thoughts, words, and actions. Um, and I'm clear about the accountabilities that I agree to. And if you clean up your language and, and you make this distinction, don't make somebody responsible for something that they're actually accountable to and don't make somebody accountable to something that they can't be responsible for, then you're going to be much more effective as a manager and a leader. And, and, and that's why I asked that question because I think those terms particularly jumped out at me in terms of professional relationships and not just for direct line management, but I think with peers, with colleagues, with external stakeholders as well. Uh, if you really understand where that responsibility lies, where accountability lies, where ownership lies, and you've got a, a very interesting matrix that you mentioned there um, that you illustrate in the book, uh, then communication is clearer between partners. So yeah. is this something that you see happening regularly or is it something that you see the big gap in organizations you work with? Well, it's a big gap with every human being, really. I mean, you know that, you know, as well as being a speaker and, and, and facilitator and writer on leadership, I'm a coach. And as a coach, getting my coaches to take ownership of what they're responsible for, whether that's in their relationship with their spouse. I don't do marriage counseling, but you know, often that's the issue. If, or if that's the responsibility with their with their subordinates. I mean, if we if we treat our employees as our children. Now, I have children. I'm, I'm a father of, of three kids, and you know, people say, well, you have to be responsible for your children. I say, yeah, I am up until the point that they can be responsible for themselves. Now, all of my children are teenagers. And so I have watched that transition for me being responsible for them, for me passing that responsibility to them and then holding them accountable to principles. But if I hold my employees responsible, all right, uh, uh, instead of empowering them to take their own responsibility, then that's micromanaging and you're going to lose all of the engagement and all of the innovation and creativity that that individual would have. So any relationship, we need to be clear, hang on a moment, you know, you're angry about something, right? Did I do something that angered you? Am I responsible for your anger? Actually, no, you're responsible for your anger. You've chosen to be angry about that issue, right? I, I'm sorry, I can't be responsible for your anger. You got upset. Sorry you're upset, all right? In terms of our relationship, don't want you to be upset. But if I allow you to make me responsible for all of your emotions, then we're back to codependency again. And you're now manipulating me to please you. And I have to then become a people pleaser, which, of course, um, is, is counterproductive. A great relationship between two individuals or more is where each is responsible for themselves. And then they come together in shared values, and create what the Germans give us the word gestalt, where the whole is greater than the sum of the individual parts. So this is everywhere. This, this is fundamental to all of the coaching I ever do with anybody. And somebody says, well, you know, this person is making me feel bad. And I am go, uh, sorry, whose feelings are they? Well, they're my feelings. And I go, so how are they making you feel bad? Well, I'm telling myself, ah, so it's your responsibility. Andy's new book, Just Ask, Why Seeking Support is Your Greatest Strength, is out now. Looking at the importance of asking for help and admitting vulnerability, it is an essential read in challenging times. Order your copy from Amazon and all good book retailers now 
or visit andylapata.com forward slash just ask. Uh, straight away, it's very clear why I felt that this book was so relevant to, to this podcast. And I think that understanding those principles and difference between them and the re- responsibility we can take uh, for, for our own feelings and for our own interactions can have a huge impact on the relationships we build. Uh, as we go through, I'm just going to pick out a few things that I, I, I picked up from the book and, and get you just to explain them and expand upon them for, for people who might not have read it yet. Um, so one of the things that jumped out at me is that we often hear um, that um, it, it's bad management that loses um, employees, uh, and you challenge that a little bit. Um, so can you just outline for you what's more important in terms of attracting and, in reta- and retaining talent, uh, the culture of the company um, or the relationship with and the reputation of its leaders and managers? Yeah, well, it's more of an algorithm. It, it's not a straight line cause and effect. I mean, you know, if somebody has a bad manager, they are going to be upset um, and they are potentially going to leave. So it's not a false statement. There's enough evidence for people to say, oh, that happens. But it's much more likely if it's a bad manager in a bad culture, if it's a toxic culture, they're definitely going to leave. But if you actually have a bad manager and you have a very empowering culture, that person is actually likely to stay and look to move laterally within the organization and grow. So um, making a simple cause-effect statement, people leave bad managers, um, is not – you haven't looked deep enough. You have to look at – what is, what is the culture of the organization? Because if you can see there are other good managers here, there are other people that are being engaged and empowered and able to produce, and I'm just dealing with this individual, then I've got the question whether this is a learning opportunity for me to, I mean, we're all going to have a bad boss at one point during our life. I mean, statistically, I think that's, and, and I think if we don't learn to manage upwards in that situation, um, the universe is going to give us that lesson over and over again until we've learned it. I'm not particularly woo-woo spiritual, but, you know, it just seems to be that, you you know, if you don't learn the lesson, it comes back and repeats itself. So if you're in a, if you're in a, organization that actually is fairly healthy and and there are examples of good managers and you don't have a particularly good one, here's a great opportunity to learn some influence upward skills. So what would you do in that situation? Learn to influence upwards. Well, um, I use the expression um, currency. Everybody has a currency, right? You're in the UK, you know, you're using pound sterling. I'm in Portugal, we're using euro. Uh, so the, the currency buys us something. Now, if I know your currency is pounds, I want to pay you in pounds. Knowing the currency of that boss, that boss has things that he or she wants, you know, power, recognition, influence, um, and they're potentially being driven by fear and anxiety. What is it that they need? So if they're being a bad boss because they're reacting from fear and anxiety of being found out, then you want to make them feel as comfortable as possible. Hey, boss, I've covered this. Is that right? And then you, the, you, their limbic system, their, that part of the brain that's very reactive becomes dampened down and you're able to influence them. So learning the currency of a bad boss um, is, is a great skill. I mean, learning the currency of any boss and any customer, of course, is fundamental to influence. Learning it, um, and it's counterintuitive, but you have to lean in to a bad boss. 
The tendency is if you've got somebody, anybody in your life that you don't get on very well, the tendency, the, the natural reaction, and this is connected leadership, isn't it? The natural reaction is to retreat. Counterintuitively, I coach people, lean in. If this person is giving you a hard time, lean in, find out what it is that is triggering them, get closer, and you will have, have much greater chance of influencing them because you'll know what their currency is. And what about if you are a leader in the organization and you know you've got bad bosses within the middle management of the organization and you want to create a positive culture internally? How do you uh, upskill rather than weed out those bad bosses? Well, you already took one of my options away. I mean, Jim Collins said, <laughs> you know, Jim Collins, always, you know, his statement was get the right people off the bus, get the wrong people off the bus. Look, if somebody lacks the skill of being a people manager, then that's why I wrote this book, because it was a request. This book was actually commissioned by one of my clients. I was I was the coach to the CEO and the executive leadership team, and the chief people officer said, hey, do you, do you do stuff for middle managers? And I said, well, I have done. You know, I've been doing this for over, nearly 25 years, but I tend to focus on senior leaders. She said, well, I need a handbook for our middle managers on how to do the things that you've taught our executive leadership team to do. Would you be interested in writing that? And I said, well, let's let's talk about the commercials of that. And it was such that the commercials were okay, but I said, look, I for, for this to work, I need to hang on to the IP. I'll eventually write the book, which the new leadership book became. So this is a book full of skills for senior leaders to then use as a framework to coach their middle managers. So that's what I would do. And thank you for the opportunity to plug. Perfectly placed for you. But, but honestly, you know, uh, honestly, I think you've got to do that evaluation. Is is the person, you know, teachable? Do, do, are they open to learning? Are they are they coachable? If you have somebody in the middle management that clearly is not a fit for the culture, clearly lacks the competency, then you should look at weeding them out. And in the book, I talk about talent and strengths, and there's there's a great acronym, COW, C-O-W, which stands for capacity. Ownership and willingness. Now, uh, capacity, do, do, do they have the skills? And if the person clearly lacks the skills, is that trainable? Ownership, we've already talked about the, the responsibility. Are they be able to take responsibility for that scenario themselves? Or are, are they blaming, complaining, and playing the victim? And do they have the willingness to learn? Right? Because in the UK, as you know, we say you can take a horse to water, but you can't you make can't it swim backstroke. So, um, yeah, if they're not willing to, 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 to grow, then absolutely weed them out. And the sooner you do, the happier you're going to be. If they're trainable, then that's why I wrote this book as a framework for leaders to have actually to support a culture where everybody's playing from the same playbook. So what makes someone coachable or trainable and can you influence it? I, I think everybody's coachable. They're not necessarily coachable by me and they're not necessarily coachable now or they're not necessarily coachable by you. And they're not so there's So there's a person and there's a time. And I think if you reflect back in your life, there's been certain epiphanies when you go, I really need some help here. There, there's time when we're in denial and we, you know, hey, I've got this all under control. You know, how hard could it be? And then things go pear-shaped and we go, oh, you know, I really need some help here. So... It's that realization that there's a gap between our performance and the objective. 
And and the important thing is just again around the ownership and the responsibility that we started with. I own my behaviors, but I am not my behaviors. Right. So I might do something that doesn't work. Right. And I get feedback. Hey, you did that. That didn't work. And I go, okay. Now, of course, everybody loves great feedback and validation and acknowledgement, but hang on a moment. I tried that. It didn't work. Because I'm a self-leader, I go, that didn't work. I can fix it. I can learn. I can grow from that. If I take the, the, the feedback as criticism, as me as an individual, then I'm going to be defensive and not be able to hear the feedback. So I think it's a clear distinction. Can somebody separate what they're doing from who they are? And are they able to take feedback on the behavior and not make it about me? Oh, you don't like me. No, it's not like I don't like that. I'm coaching you or I'm offering you feedback. That means I care enough to take the time to correct your behaviors so that you're, you can he- achieve your objectives. So it comes from a positive intention. The manager, the leader, the coach has a positive in- intention. Uh, the, the psychologist Carl Rogers called it unconditional positive regard to say, hey, I believe in you. I believe you can make the adjustment. So, you know, we're talking in very broad terms here. And obviously, in the introduction, I mentioned that you've lived in the UK, Australia, Singapore, now Portugal. You've worked in very different cultures. And working with people in those different cultures, you will see how leaders need to adapt uh, their style to to how people are likely to respond in that culture. Or maybe you've seen that it's not as uh, as big an adaptation, if that's the right word, needed as we might think so how does local culture influence leadership style and what style will thrive uh, and how do you adapt to that if you're a leader in a multinational country uh, company and your responsibilities cover several regions okay so yes we have to adapt to culture a little bit we have to understand um but leadership style is dependent upon the motivation and capability of the followers, the employees, and the scenario, the situation, or the culture. So in the book, I I talk about leadership as a three-legged stool. You know, there are three elements to leadership. The leader's style, the motivation and capability of the followers, and the environment. So if we're at 40,000 feet in an aircraft and the oxygen masks do fall from the ceiling, if the captain was to come out of the cockpit and say, ladies and gentlemen, got a bit of a problem, I'd like to create some focus groups and get your buy-in in terms of how I should handle this. At this point, even the atheists are getting religion, right? So that would be a participative, consultative leadership style in a high crisis scenario. We know if it's high crisis, the best leadership style is directive. Hey, I'm your captain, fasten your seatbelt, put the oxygen mask on, I'm going to take control of it. So a directive leadership style is ideal. If you are the leader of a group of consultant surgeons who have spent 28 years of their education who are highly competent in their area, and you start telling them what to do, there will be a walk, a mass walkout, a revolt. You need to be participative and get their buy-in, particularly if it's a very stable environment. Now, if it's the midst of the pandemic and you say, hey, you need to do this quickly, then maybe they will take your direction. So a sensitivity to the environment and the the motivation and capability of the individuals is the most important. 
Then we question cultural nuance, right? And it's interesting. In the book, I interviewed somebody who's an XHR director for Google. And Google, of course, is in everywhere. And they really say, well, it's the Google culture. Regardless if you're in Pakistan or Bangladesh or Singapore or Australia or North Dakota, is that this is the Google culture, that you join our culture and these are our cultural values, norms, and principles. So if you set up the culture for your team and say, hey, this is the way we behave here. Yes, I recognize your, your, your cultural nuances, but this is the way we behave from while we're at work. Whatever you do outside with your family, with your culture, that's what you do and we respect and we, we acknowledge that. But here, this is the way we behave. So good leaders create a psychologically safe culture so that everybody can 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 do that. Um, when you move to a country, you need to recognize that there are certain ways to put foot firmly in mouth. Um, I lived in uh, in Asia for eighteen years, um, and, and when I first moved from Australia to Asia, my friend said, "Hey, Andrew, you're moving to Asia. You better learn to be humble." And I'm like, well, gee, guys, how, how arrogant do you think I am? And they said, Andrew, you know, you're not arrogant, but you're confident. And I said, well, hang on a moment. Confidence and arrogance aren't even on the same scale. They're, 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 they're different criteria. And they said, yes, but in Asia, confidence can be misinterpreted as arrogance. And I went, okay, that's useful information. And so you know, my first few months in, in Asia, I, I, I did put foot in mouth because I would confidently say something when I needed to, you know, check the currency before I said it. Um, and, and humility, which is a huge value in Asia, I was able to reframe that as humility from the Latin humilitas, meaning grounded. You are grounded in your culture and your capabilities, right? And I'm acknowledging that and I'm grounded in my culture and capabilities. How can we work together? And so just a sensitivity is worthwhile picking up. I, I do love your metaphor of the currency, which you mentioned at length in, in an earlier answer, and you've just referenced again there. Um, and, you know, I talk about reach out to people with no agenda, take the eye test, how many times do you say I rather than how many times do you say we or you, um, and, and try and put yourself into other people's shoes. Do you think that's one of the major causes of communication breakdown within companies, that inability to understand what the other person's currency is and take the time to convert uh, your request into euros from sterling, uh, for example? I think it's, I think it is a, I think it is a significant problem. I mean, the, you know, I, I, I obviously I, I love the origin of words and the origin of the word communication is uh, is from Latin to share. And my belief is that we have only communicated when there is a shared meaning and understanding. If I just say what I want to say, I have transmitted, I have broadcast. But until it is received and decoded and then responded to, I don't think a communication has occurred. And And just... You know, the U.S. Navy SEALs have this uh, motto that uh, uh, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. And, and I think this is a, I think this is, a, and I mentioned this in the book, and I, I think this is a great maxim because sometimes we're in a hurry to get our point across. Uh, 
And the more of a hurry we are to get our point across, the longer it takes to get our point across. And just taking that few moments to just make sure we're on the same page, um, I think goes a long way. I know how to say hello and thank you in a huge number of languages. Am I uh, am I a, a skilled linguist? No, I'm not. I, 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 I'm functional in Portuguese because I live here and I'm married to a Brazilian, um, but I'm by no means fluent. But I can say hello and thank you in a huge number of languages, and I try. And, and as an Englishman, making the effort goes a long way because we know the English generally just increase their volume to be understood instead of listening. And slow down. <laughs> a little bit <laughs> so it, it leads on quite nicely because because in the book you talk about our tendency towards assuming things and, yeah. and the impact that that has so just how much damage are we doing through assumption um and how can we uh protect against making those incorrect incorrect assumptions in the first place so i think this ties in a lot with the currency discussion yeah, well, I'm, I'm afraid I got bad news. Um, you know, uh, uh, Daniel Kahneman, who wrote the book Think Fast and Slow, and won a Nobel Peace Prize for his work on unconscious bias, said after I don't know, 45 years of studying unconscious bias, I still know I'm still biased. So if this guy, who's an, you know I hold up in the highest esteem as a genius in this area, discovered he was still biased, what hope have you and I got? So we we all have a level of bias, but having the willingness to challenge it. Um, you know, the Queen's husband died, was it last year? Um, Philip, yeah. yeah. And, you know, he made some horrendous gaffes as he went around the world with his bias and his British colonialist um, outlook. And I grew up with him and my father, you know, would mirror some of those things. Um, and then... You know, in traveling to different countries and experiencing different things, uh, going through my own failures of relationship. You know, I've been through divorce and come out the other side and realizing the assumption I've made, having an LGBTQ daughter who has educated me in in some of the biases that I would have made. Um, I, I, I'm just excited that I, I get to see the world in more depth and richer. Am I still learning? Do I still make gaffes? Absolutely. So what I share is that we are, you know, I have nothing to prove. I mean, I turned 61 today. I've got nothing to prove. I've, I've done a number of things in my life that, I, that are fairly you know, considered successful. So I've got nothing to prove, but I've got lots of things to improve. And because I don't feel vulnerable at taking the feedback, I can say, look, I'm really sorry. You know, my intention was this. Let me reframe that. Let, let me understand. I'm open and willing and curious to learn where I might be making these mistakes. And I'm very grateful I'm at this place in my life when I was younger and much more arrogant. That absolutely wasn't the case. Um, in fact, you, you know, if you don't mind, let me just tell you a story. My, my first love when I, was a, uh, when I was a physiotherapy student at West Middlesex University Hospital, my first love was a nursing student who was a Gujarati girl who couldn't tell her parents that she was dating an, you know, a, a, an Englishman. And you know, we, we, had a, we had a relationship for three years, and she offered to cook me curry. And I said, oh, I don't want to eat any of that Indian muck. Um, you know, after we broke up, I discovered curry 
And I went, you idiot, you had a girlfriend for three years that offered to cook you, for you and you didn't eat it. I mean, I lost it. So, so when you're biased, when you're closed, you are missing out. All right. And I mean, you know, are we, I'm driving a German car and, you know, drinking Italian coffee. And I mean, if, if you are not open to different aspects, you are the one that loses out. So I encourage everybody to take a deep breath and go, what is the lens I'm looking at this through? And is there a different way of looking at this? And just being curious, how do you look at this? How do you see this? And, um, and, and that's being genuinely curious. In fact, the definition of humility, and I talked about humility earlier, apart from having an accurate, neither overestimated nor underestimated view of your own abilities, is the ability to consider somebody else's perspectives as equally valid as your own. And, and a lot of people who say they're humble <laughs> are not humble at all. They're humble as long as you agree with their worldview. But true humility is I could be absolutely wrong about all of this. Tell me what you see. So in, in summary uh, to that question about uh, protecting ourselves against incorrect assumptions and presumption, it's about self-awareness and it's about that humility you talk about. And yes, you may have an opinion, but you don't be set in it and be open uh, to people changing your mind, which is perhaps something that's lacking in the world at the moment it is i mean it is it is actually one of the big five psychometrics which is openness to experience and there's a lot of research around this the the the, the, the five aspects of personality which the british and the the american psychological association recognize there are lots of you know personality tests but there are really only five um real aspects with two subtraits for each, which is openness to experience, consciousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism, which is renamed emotional stability because nobody wants to be called neurotic. But openness to experience, this willingness to see things differently is clearly correlated with intelligence and is tends to be lacking in anybody with fundamentalist views. Um, so this is, uh, you know, this is Jordan Peterson's area. You know, he gets himself into a lot of trouble with, uh, upsetting people with this, but he says, look, if you aren't open to look at different views, then you're, you know, clearly lower on the intelligence scale. Um, and people don't like that. So anybody who's fundamentalist, um, I'm sorry, the psychology <laughs> says, you know, start opening up your experience and you will increase your intelligence. And it's, it's easy to, to use the social debates as an illustration of that, where people are very set in their opinions on transgender rights, for example, or on uh, COVID restrictions, whatever it might be, how to get out of the cost of living crisis at the moment. Uh, but actually, it plays out in a, in a more micro level in everyday conversation, doesn't it, in, in, around the workplace we need to be doing this. This is our way forward. And and how do we change that communication around the table where, okay, you've got people who have got different perspectives on how to address something, something we're seeing in the Conservative Party at the moment <laughs> very much um, in the UK, uh, but trying to create a conversation without conflict where you can have vibrant debate and you can be challenged but you're seeking consensus rather than to win the argument. Yeah. Well, again, it, it's, it comes from a level of st 
stability in yourself, right? Is 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 you know your willingness to consider somebody else's perspective, your willingness to say, you know what, I was wrong on that, doesn't diminish me or you as a human being if you admit to that. But so many people are fragile and go, well, if I was wrong on this, then I'm wrong about everything and my whole world is going to collapse. And so they're not willing to look at it. So there's that element. And then there is the Machiavellian aspect of people that actually understand that if they promote fear and division, then they can gain a certain form of currency. So we're back to currency. And they're, they're not all currency is good currency, right? And, and fear and division can be a currency. You, you, you get buy-in and we see this around the world. So these people are intentionally, consciously or unconsciously, I guess, utilizing that division for their own ends. And the problem is that because we have to engage in multiple perspectives, that, that requires a level of thinking. And as Henry Ford said, he, thinking is the, the toughest work we ever do, which is why so few people do any of it. So the ability to actually examine, right, there are two perspectives. Do I just belong to a group and a tribe that believes X or believes Y, whether I choose the blue or the red team? Um, and just accept everything they say unfiltered, or do I use critical thinking? And critical thinking hurts because, well, this is right in this context, but it's wrong in this context. Now I've got to deal with paradox. How do I resolve that? That's hard work. And most people don't want to do it because their brains are lazy and all brains are lazy. They try and find the shortest route. Um, but around big issues, we should have thinking. So, so let's pick up on this point about do I want to belong to a tribe and the, the people pleaser aspect of this as well. So I think that all, all factors into how we, how we have these conversations. In the book, you say that being nice doesn't help your team grow. Can you elaborate on that for us? Sure. Well, I, I don't know. I'm trying to remember if I actually fully told the story in the, in, in the book. I know I tell this story in, 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 a, in a blog that I wrote about being nice doesn't advance your career, which uh, I took an element of the blog and incorporated in the book, is that I, you know, I went to an English grammar school and I had an, uh, a teacher with the same surname, Bryant, and he seemed to decide that I was not suitable to have the same surname. Somehow I didn't meet his standard and he absolutely had it in for me. And he had a steel ruler and he, these were the days when he hit you over the back of the knuckles with a steel ruler and it hurt. It absolutely hurt. And he had a pet peeve for the word nice. And the word nice actually comes from the French nessier, which actually, and it actually means stupid. So we use this word nice as a non-confrontational word. It's nice, but actually it means a level of ignorance. Nice doesn't mean what we think it is. So people use the word nice as non-conflict. I'm going to be nice. I'm not going to give you feedback, but I'm not going to tell you you're making mistakes. I'm just going to be nice and stay silent. Or I'm just going to be nice to you. Now, I understand courtesy. You know, the British are very good at that. You know, we're very courteous people, you know, so much so that we can tell you to go to hell and have you thank us for the directions, right? But, but being nice is being inexact. And I think as a manager, as a leader, we need to give good feedback so people can adjust their behaviors to reach the targets. So being nice to somebody who is missing the target doesn't serve a function right? If I believe in you and I believe with this unconditional positive regard that you can be a better version of you, then it behoves me 
you know, I have a I have a personal responsibility. If I see that you could could do better and we have an accountability, I'm your boss, then I need to say, hey, uh, you're doing X, this behavior, and I'm able to describe it because I've observed it. This doesn't, you know, how does this get you towards your target? It doesn't. Therefore, you need to adjust your behavior. And I have no truck that you might be a little bit upset with me for pointing this out because not pointing it out when it comes to performance review and I give you does not meet objectives, you go, well, I didn't meet objectives, but you've been nice to me all year. Yes, but I was being nice, but I'd rather you told me I wasn't hitting the target. Oh, right. You see the problem, right? Well, you know, because you read the book, right? And uh, thank you for the question. But everybody listening or watching this, don't be nice, be accurate, right? It's um, it's quite funny because you and I are both in uh, our local uh, professional speaking community, professional speaking association in the UK. For me, we met through the Asian Professional Speakers uh, Singapore, which you were for which you were president, and you're now uh, president of the Spanish uh, Speaking Association, if I remember rightly. Um, so, <clears throat> within that environment, certainly in the UK, there is. There has been at times a tendency to be very careful with feedback. Uh, there are people who do showcases. They, they'll try out new content or newer speakers will, will try out and they'll get feedback from the group. And in the UK, we have Speaker Factor, which is a competition for newer speakers, uh, which, which uh, the finals always at our, our national convention. Uh, and I don't. I, I cannot stand the praise sandwich. I've talked about it on the podcast before. <laughs> this, well, you, you know, your hair looks nice, but that talk was absolutely dreadful. But I do like your choice of shoes. <laughs> For me, it is, <clears throat> I don't think it serves anyone. Uh, um, and, and, you know, I judge um, uh, speaker factor heats quite often. I normally will do one a year. Um, and I'm direct but it comes from the right place and it comes from a, a, a place of wanting to help people improve. Uh, and you said earlier about how people can take it personally when they get poor feedback, but actually you're saying, no, I care about you enough to give you this feedback. So, yeah, well that, so, I mean, I think that pre-frame depends, you know, it depends in an environment where somebody is framed to receive feedback. I mean, the original lineup of American Idol was perfectly set up for that, right? You, you had, you had, uh, you had Paul Abdul, who was the, oh, you're wonderful. You look beautiful. You know, you're changing the world. You're sensational. You had the unconditional validation. You had Randy Jackson, I feel you, my dog, who would say, well, you know, this is good, but this one's a little bit pitchy, a little bit of moderated feedback. And you had Simon Cowell, who was designed to be abrasive and say, don't give up your day job, right? Now, if you watch the original, how many seasons were there of this thing? But um, I, I watched the early couple of seasons and the, the contestants they, they, they loved Paula, they loved Randy, but they wanted Simon's feedback because Simon's criteria was, is this commercial? Now, remember, the subtitle of my book is Being Human Whilst Successfully Delivering Accelerated Results. We want to be human. We want to be empathetic. Yeah, everybody likes validation. We need to check that the person has the self-esteem. They have the self-belief to separate the feedback from themselves. And if I sense that somebody is fragile, that they cannot separate self from the feedback, then I won't give it, right? Because it is dangerous. They can't receive it. Whereas if somebody, you know, and I can say, look, 
you know, this is about what you did and using your speaker factor example, this is about what, this is not about who you are. This is about what you did. And the criteria I'm measuring you against is, is this commercial? Then they will receive the feedback. And I've done the same. I've given feedback uh, both for Asia professional speakers and also um, I was a judge for Keynote Academy, which is uh, an academy for women speakers. And I, I was the Simon Cowell and I was framed as the Simon Cowell. They asked me to give the tough feedback because there's sort of a gender bias here that women tend to want to be nicer than men. I know that's a huge stereotype, but in this particular case, I, I, was, I was supposed to be the bad boy. And yet, if you fit, <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, I, well, I've been told that you know, if speaking, coaching, and writing doesn't work out for me, I can get a job as a nightclub bouncer. So. <laughs> I don't call you too nice to do that, oh, okay. uh, uh, <laughs> Andrew. Um, I, I, I mentioned at the beginning that there were so many questions I wanted to ask uh, from reading the book. I filtered them down. I still didn't get through all of them. I wanted to talk to you about, uh, creating a culture that encourages collaboration, not silos. I wanted to talk about saying yes. And which we talked about in last week's, um, podcast on improvisation. I wanted to talk to you about the Pygmalion effect. People are just going to have to get the book and read it to find out the answers because we've run out of time. Uh, the book is the new leadership playbook. I wish you every success with it uh, because it deserves it. And thank you so much for your time on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Andy. I, I, I felt like I did all the talking. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's that's my job is to sit here and listen and let you shine. And uh, I think you did that today. So thank you. Thank you so much to, to Andrew for, for joining me. Uh, you know, I think you can normally tell when I'm really enjoying a book. <laughs> I enjoy the books of everyone who comes on the show, but I do tend to mention them more when I've really got into them a, a lot. Um, and read into that what you will. But the book is The New Leadership Playbook by Andrew Bryant. Um, I recommend it. It's, it's a very good read and there's a lot that's relevant to people who listen to this podcast. Uh, if you have enjoyed it, my normal request, please do uh, share it, rate it, review it. Uh, tell the world really help us get the word out I would appreciate it uh, just call it Andrew's birthday present not this Andy but the other Andrew um, but let's, let's spread the word we have got some great conversations coming up for you on the Connected Leadership Podcast I'm hoping all being well that next week's interview will be the third in, on, in our trilogy on humour and then we're going to kick off September with a very very topical and very exciting conversation uh, looking at how you break down establishment cliques, um, particularly based around what's happening on that day on September the 5th with the Conservative leadership election and a new Prime Minister coming into place, yet another who studied at Oxford. Um, and I, uh, I talked to Simon Cooper, who's written a book called Chums. He went to Oxford alongside Boris Johnson and David Cameron and a range of conservative leaders and, and uh, industry and uh, civil service leaders. And in the book, he talks about why so many Oxford graduates uh, end up in leadership positions in this country and what we can learn from that in business as well. It's a fascinating conversation. That's on September the 5th, but I shall see you again soon on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great connected leadership tips.